Hi, I'm Caroline Yoder. And I'm Cameron Hilt. Welcome to a virtual view where we talk about healthcare, telehealth, and everything in between. Today, we'll be talking with Nicole Watkins, who is the program coordinator of a community paramedicine program. Nicole, we're very happy to have you with us today. And for our listeners, for a lot of them, this is maybe their first time um, they're getting to uh, hear you. So share with us a little bit of your background and how did you end up kind of making your journey over to the Indiana Rural Health Association? Yeah, so I started out in 2013, fresh out of high school. I got hired as a clerk in the corporate compliance department at Union Hospital in Terre Haute. I did not know what I was getting into, but it was a great learning experience. I learned a ton, not only about compliance, but just how hospitals work, the inner workings of them, the issues that they are seeing and experiencing. And then I also got my first taste of being located very near to a rural area. So then after completing my master's degree in public health, I moved over to the Luger Center for Rural Health, which is a part of Union, but they do very different work in the grant sphere where they are working in the rural counties around Vigo. So I got a lot of exposure to rural barriers and innovations and solutions and learn just how the grant world worked, how to write a grant, how to implement a grant, how to do project management and how to network and how to communicate with legislators, which is something that was completely new to me. So I'm still kind of trying to get a grasp on that one. But after that, I got married and moved to Indianapolis. So then I switched over to the Indiana Rural Health Association, where I am working as the Rural Health Clinic Network Director, but we all wear many hats. So I'm also the project coordinator for the Community Paramedicine Program. Yeah, it's been a pleasure for us to have you here, you know, at the Indiana Rural Health Association. And with some of your past experience working with the Luger Center, I know you had some opportunities to work on specifically maternal focused programs before. So why don't you tell us a little bit about some of that experience before you started working on the community paramedicine program? Yeah, I had experience working with two different programs, a safety pin program, which is a grant from the Indiana Department of Health. Before my time at the Luger Center, actually, this had started where we put nurse navigators into OB offices to help wrap services around those who lived in the area. So we had to focus on specific zip codes for that one and focus was on improving the infant mortality rate. And the other program I helped work on was starting up the Healthy Start program. So it's West Central Indiana Healthy Start. And that was an experience that was brand new. Learning about community health workers and how can we best use community health workers with the nurse navigators and putting them out into the rural areas to really connect with the moms that are living in the rural areas and finding resources that are available in those rural counties and just seeing how can we best serve them to have them have the healthiest pregnancy and healthiest birth possible. Yeah, those are some amazing and well-known programs, especially here um, in Indiana. So that's, you know, fantastic experience to have going into the community paramedicine program. And one thing that's interesting with that, having some of those opportunities to work on those programs in the past, was there anything that you kind of experienced that kind of like sparked some of the desire and passion to work specifically with mothers and infants? 
Our nurse navigators told a lot of different stories. Some of them were heartbreaking. Some of them were just very heartwarming too. There was one story in particular that just kind of made me realize that there's such a need for education for everyone. There are standards of care that are changing all of the time and they change so quickly and it's hard to keep up on them, especially when you're a mom or when you're working and you're not in the healthcare industry. It's very hard to keep up with it and who you can trust, what sources are reliable sources. And so this one story was about a mom who was hearing from her doctor, okay, the baby needs a flat, sturdy surface to sleep on with nothing else. And so they had went and found an infant sleeping in a cardboard box in the home on one of her home visits. And that just breaks your heart to hear that there are these situations at home and so like our navigators and community health workers were able to do a little bit more education and hook her up with a resource that would get her a crib for free or a pack and play for free um, just so that the mom could understand and have a safe sleep environment for her child. So those are the kind of things that I was indirectly able to be a part of a program that was literally changing lives and that just makes everything else worth it. Being able to work alongside some of those frontline workers mm -hmm. that are really making an impact in these patients' lives, and especially in Indiana where we just have huge gaps in education for mothers as well as very high infant mortality. Now we've seen a lot of improvement because of some of these programs like Safety Pin and Healthy Start that we've been rolling out in Indiana, but there's still lots of room to improve and being a part of that, I imagine, is, is very special. How about you give us a little bit of an overview of what that program entails? Yeah, definitely. A community paramedicine program is a mobile integrated health program that utilizes paramedics that have extra training to be an extension of the physician office. So community paramedicine programs can have a singular or multiple focus areas. So that could include areas like cardiac, geriatrics, chronic disease, and then obstetrics as well. So for our community paramedicine program, we chose to focus on OB to work with those prenatal and postpartum women and their babies. So it's a relatively new model, correct? So it's not yes. like there is you know, tons of use cases of community paramedicine programs specifically. And so what was kind of the origin of this program? So we have worked with Crawfordsville Fire Department who have Project Swaddle is their program name. And we are kind of taking their model and replicating it to other areas of the state. So that might not be a perfect replication, which is okay because all communities have different needs and different resources available. So we're just taking their core model and then replicating that to other areas of the state and letting those counties make it their own. And with that program in Crawfordsville, what were some of the things that kind of stood out to want to replicate that program in other parts of the state? They are very, very successful. They've been doing this for a long time. I believe they started in 2013. So yes, that's a long time in terms of the um, model, but they have buy-in from the city, from the county, 
from their local hospital. So Franciscan is in that area of the state. Franciscan supports them. They have the mayor on board. The you know, fire chief is on board. We work with the division chief at the fire department. He is a wealth of information. They also work with local and community resources to uh, get referrals into their program, but also to connect people in the program to those resources in the community. So they just, they have the, the perfect setup and it took them a very long time to get there. So if we can take their successful model and then put it in other areas and kind of make that time frame shorter of how long it took to get there and learn from their experiences, then we want to do that because they know and they have data and numbers that are showing that they are helping the women and the babies in their community greatly. Yeah, it's amazing to have a model like that at hand and that you can replicate in other parts of the state. And you can correct me if I'm wrong on this, Nicole, this was kind of started as a passion project, right? Some of these community paramedics, they were doing it completely on a voluntary basis. Yes, yeah, that's correct. Some of them are retired paramedics. So that was one of the benefits is that it extends the paramedics career. It also offers something a little different. Maybe they're getting towards the end of their career and they're looking for something that's a little less high stakes, a little less rushed, and they are just really wanting to be infused into the community. And so this is a perfect, perfect opportunity for that. Yeah, and it's it's interesting too, because I feel like the Project Swaddle program probably benefited from that to a degree too, of it really was a passion project. People were not necessarily doing it for the money. It was we want to either continue working or we want to just see mothers in our communities have healthier lives and mm-hmm. healthier babies, which is really special to see that. But as you want that program to grow and expand, being able to have opportunities where there's some different funding that comes available, as well as funding for those particular paramedics, that that just helps you be able to scale that out more. And so I know for the community paramedicine program, you all also work with United Healthcare. Um, mm-hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about what that partnership looks like? Yes. So United Healthcare was interested in community paramedicine. And so they came to us and they had some funding that they could kind of delve out for this program. And so they've given us some seed money for each of the hospitals. So IRHA is not keeping any money for ourselves to cover project management or anything, but we are giving it all out to the partners. And it is not enough to fully start and fund a community paramedicine program, which takes about $200,000, which sounds like a lot. But if you think about it, you're buying a car, you're hiring someone, um, you're training them. And so it all kind of builds up. So this is just seed funding that we have been able to provide to the hospitals to either get started or to kind of build on a program that they already have and that can complement community paramedicine. As always, IRHA is looking out for additional funding sources. There are a couple that are on our radar specifically that can help with substance use disorder or opioid use disorder and different things like that. So always on the lookout, but yes, extra funding is always a great thing. Yes, absolutely. And we have some listeners uh, that are located in other states outside of Indiana. And so for 
those of our uh, listeners who may not be familiar, what are some of the maternal outcomes or infant outcomes in Indiana? Could you just talk a little bit about what that looks like? Yeah. So Indiana has historically not been known for great maternal and child health. Governor Holcomb is determined for Indiana to be the best in the Midwest by 2024, but we do have a long way to go. Um, The most recent data we have is from 2019. So the infant mortality rate in 2019 was 6.5 per 1,000 live births. The maternity or maternal mortality rate is 0.9 per 100,000, or that equates to about 51 deaths. Preterm births consist of over 10% of live births, and then about 8% of live births have a low birth weight, which is infants weighing less than five pounds, eight ounces. So there is room to grow. Indiana is not the worst in the country, but it is not the best. So we do have a ways to go, but that also gives us some, some room to come up with these innovative ideas and kind of pitch them to state agencies and say, hey, we really think this could work. Are you willing to be on board with us? So there's room to grow. It, it does kind of beg the question too of what are some of the barriers that mothers in Indiana specifically face that are kind of contributing to those outcomes? Especially rural uh, mothers face so many different barriers and that is our focus as we are working with these different hospitals throughout the state. Um, but I think the most noteworthy are OB deserts, transportation barriers, generational misinformation, and then higher adverse outcome rates. So the Indiana Hospital Association released a map of Indiana that some of you might have seen that highlighted which counties did and did not have a hospital with delivery services. So there's a large area in central northwestern Indiana that does not have any kind of hospital or they have a hospital, but they do not provide delivery services. So that's a big issue when coming into receiving care getting prenatal care, so that's a big one. Transportation barriers are also huge, especially when you have to travel so far because of the OV desert to get care, which that can lead to missed appointments or mothers just forego care altogether, or some of them go with doulas or midwives, which are great, but then you also have the, the thought of what if something bad happens and I need medical services, I need a hospital. So those are all very tough decisions to make. And then especially with generational misinformation, which can come from a lack of education on the most recent standards of care. We talked earlier about how those standards of care are ever changing all the time. We can wake up and something is different. So just for an example, sometimes like grandmothers may advise their daughters as she puts her baby to sleep that it's okay to put the baby to sleep on her stomach. And because grandma did that and she survived just fine. But then now the standard of care is the ABCs of safe sleep. So the baby needs to be alone on their back in a crib. And so that's just one example of how things change so quickly and it's so hard to keep up to date on those. That's just one barrier of education that is really difficult. So all of these challenges together and more can contribute to the necessity for home-based and patient-centered care. Is there a place that you suggest mothers find information like so for example let's say i get pregnant i don't have necessarily maybe a ton of information i don't live close to my mom Uh, like where other than 
just straight up going to the hospital, like, are there any resources or anything like that that give information like that, like the ABCs, for example? Right, yeah. There are actually a ton of resources out there, especially online, which again, that can be a barrier not having access to internet service. But if you can get to a library or a place like that that has free Wi-Fi and computers, there are tons of online resources. The State Department of Health has a great website. There's also the Healthy Start Epic website that has a bunch of information. ACOG is the Obstetrics American College of obstetrics and gynecologists. That's what it is. So they have a bunch of information. They are kind of the governing body for OB information that's out there. There are resources that you can find on IRHA Help, for example. You can find resources for the community there. There might be local women's centers, crisis pregnancy centers that have information. So there's just, there's a bunch online. And usually if you see like the .edu or .org, you should be pretty good to go. Yeah, no, that's important, too, because a lot of times you can get in trouble if you just go in and Google search something (laughs) of what is the quality of content that I'm getting from this Mm -hmm. Google search. And so having a a list of some good websites or good resources is, is really important for, you know, preventing any misinformation getting out there and ensuring that it's a good quality source to be basing, Mm -hmm. especially something as significant as either your prenatal care, maternal care, or taking care of your child after they're born. One of the huge benefits of this model is being able to offer that in-home care, especially for Mm -hmm. these counties that are located in these OB deserts. Whenever these paramedics are going into these patients' homes, what are some of the services that they're offering? So currently there is not like a national or statewide standard for community paramedic. While this is in process of being set at the state level, we have allowed for our program hospitals and their staff to kind of decide what education is needed uh, to best serve their community. So we do recommend some trainings to them. Those can include community health worker training, safe sleep training, uh, car seat technician training so they can help moms make sure that it's installed correctly. There's perinatal mood and anxiety disorder. There's motivational interviewing, breastfeeding education, and purple crying. So those are just several of the trainings that we would recommend and we just allow hospitals and community paramedics to add to that list or they can take away from that list if they're not comfortable yet providing some of those services to the patients in the home. The paramedics really are well-versed on so many different topics to be able to ride in the home. So that's a fantastic resource, um, especially for individuals that have low access to internet, transportation issues, or Mm -hmm. they don't live close um, to an area where they can receive that care. In the future, do you see some applications for utilizing technology like telehealth for community paramedics? Definitely. So although we're not currently using telehealth in our program, since it's fairly new, we do see opportunities for telehealth use in community paramedics. So for example, they could be used in their vehicles, which are typically SUVs and not ambulances. So they can use the telehealth equipment to communicate with specialists if needed. They can communicate with the patient's physician with the patient in the home. And they can also do remote patient monitoring. And there are other uses that could be 
used for community paramedicine, maybe that are outside OB, and that's great too, especially their remote patient monitoring. That would be wonderful just for chronic disease management even or cardiac. So those are all great things that telehealth definitely can fit the bill for. Yeah, that's interesting too. Being able to pair that technology together with the in-person home visit, especially even with remote patient monitoring, you know, likely if they don't have an OB service close, they probably don't have a primary care physician that's close either. A paramedic being able to kind of bridge that gap and utilize that technology to, you know, provide some of that education for that mother could be a huge application in the future and just help the paramedic to provide an even greater level of care through the use of that technology. Yes, definitely. For a program like this to work, what do you feel like are some of the keys to having a successful community paramedicine program? So there are three things really that I feel like are keys to success for a program. First, you need a partnering EMS service, whether that's public or private, that's willing to provide community paramedicine services to the community. So they need to have the staff in order to do that or the willingness to hire staff and train them. They also need to be willing to learn how to document in the hospital's EMR system, their electronic medical record, because that's how you close that feedback loop with the hospital and the patient's physician. Secondly, you need a hospital that has buy-in from its leadership. And that's kind of how everything gets started, right? With new ideas is getting people like the ACO director, the CEO, COO, CFO, the director of physician services, and especially the OB director on board. And then you also need the hospital to allow the paramedics to have access to its EMR. So that can be kind of an issue sometimes. Some hospitals are very happy to do that. Some are not happy to do that and they really like to keep a close loop on that, which is fine too, but it works best if they can document straight into the EMR. And then thirdly, we've learned from Crawfordsville that buy-in from the city, such as the mayor's office, is very important too because the program really does affect the city too. It affects its residents, the health of its residents, which then can in turn change the economy and bring new businesses to town. So just really buy-in and financial buy-in from all of those three sources is very critical to a successful program. Yeah, that's interesting to the involvement of the state government as well. It's not just focus on working with the healthcare providers themselves, but also having that a nonprofits, a lot of times we talk about collective impact and being able to work and establish these partnerships across mm-hmm. multiple disciplines in order to improve the outcomes of a program. A lot of times when we're working in healthcare, we kind of limit ourselves if we're only working within the provider practice, but also working with how can we work with state or local government, or how can we work with local community-based organizations to help close this gap. I also thought it was interesting too, you talked about having the buy-in from the executive leadership. That's something we talk about a lot in telehealth as well Mm -hmm. as you really have to have your internal champions that are (laughs) really pressing things forward. Because if you're an external organization talking about these things, we don't have the same influence that someone that's internal to that organization can really have on adopting something that's new and innovative. Right. Kind of with that collective impact piece, it also 
takes getting feedback from experts in the field and maybe experts in different areas of healthcare that can help inform delivery for these services. So how does that look in your uh, community paramedicine program? So we have put together a advisory team of experts and stakeholders in community paramedicine. And that team exists to guide our programs and also just keep them involved. They can help brainstorm solutions to barriers that we're seeing. And they have been a wonderful, wonderful group to work with. I 100% look forward to those meetings just because they all have that passion like you had talked about behind them. And it's really just like compelling them forwards. And so serving on this group, we have, of course, myself and then our Crawfordsville Fire Department Division Chief. There's our representative from United Healthcare He's working very closely with that. We also have representatives from the Indiana Department of Health, Indiana Medicaid, so FSSA. We have InWell, uh, Mental Health America Indiana, QSource, which is a quality organization. And then we have also on there our director of EMS for the state from the Indiana Department of Homeland Security, Dr. Kaufman. He is wonderful that he carves out time for that. And so everyone just working together, they are aware of different programs in the state. So we're like, okay, how can we work together with these programs to complement and not duplicate services? And then the group kind of is focusing on our program, but also thinking big picture, right? So how can we create those statewide standards, like I talked about earlier, for community paramedics? What it, can we create standardized training, standardized services that they uh, receive? How can we create requirements that will make them a quote-unquote state-approved community paramedicine program? Do we have a logo for that? Can we create that? Are there different badges that we can have for it? So there's a lot of different things going on. And currently, we just met two days ago. And so we're currently trying to set up an annual meeting that includes representatives from the other maternal and child health programs in the state. Can we come together and say, okay, what are you doing? All right, what are you doing? Oh, did you know that the other person was doing that? No, I didn't. So it's like coming together and just kind of seeing, can we refer people and patients that we find to other programs that would better serve them? Maybe that's not our expertise. We know a little bit about it, but maybe we can send them to someone who is an expert in that field. So that team has been amazing. We've only met since, I believe, August or September. And so we meet bi-monthly, but that group is just so passionate about this. And it also just keeps them at the forefront of what we're thinking. So one of the things that is a little troublesome in community paramedicine is that you cannot bill for community paramedic services. So that's one of the things that we are hoping to change with our program and our evaluation plan is can we get the data that is required to show state agencies like the Department of Health or Indiana Medicaid, can we take this to United Healthcare, who's already involved and say, hey, these services really work and they really do make a difference and here's the data to prove it. Now can you reimburse it so we can expand it? In the long run, it saves them money as well. As much as I hate to say it, it is money driven, right? And we just really feel like reimbursing these services would just be such a huge improvement for our state. So if we can do that 
and gather the data and show it to our stakeholders and keep them involved in the entire process, then maybe we have a good shot at presenting this opportunity and them accepting it. So we are very excited to have all of the different agencies on board and they just play such a vital role in making this successful. Yeah, it's huge to have that many voices and that many brains working together to make the program successful and working for a service to get reimbursed. That's that's a tall order. It's it's not something (laughs) that is just easy to do. And so being able to have all these different disciplines as well as well-known and respected individuals serving on that advisory board really helps with making the program successful in the long term. It's interesting too, when we talk about reimbursement for EMS professionals, last year, actually at the Indiana Rural Health Association, we had a presentation about some of the barriers for EMS professionals and reimbursement was one of the issues that came up. So even the opportunity that a program like this could also help improve some of the reimbursement opportunities for EMS professionals, hopefully could also serve as a way of making that profession more appealing long-term as well as yeah. you know reducing some burnout, as well as some of the other issues that a lot of hospitals face when it comes to their EMS professionals. Oh, yes, definitely. It would be such a huge help for that. And just curious, you mentioned some of the data that you're collecting in order to kind of make a business case to reimburse community paramedicine from insurers. Mm -hmm. What are some of the metrics um, that you all are collecting to kind of help build that case? So some of the metrics we're collecting include like insurance status, services that were provided to the patients, how many NICU days the babies had, if they had any, tracking child's birth weight, looking at the number of individuals involved and enrolled in health education programs, how many individuals complete our program, and then how many referrals did we make, where were they to, what kind of services were those. So it's a non-comprehensive list, but it will allow us to conduct a data analysis and provide feedback not only to our funder, but also to the stakeholders that I mentioned in the advisory group as well. Yeah, and that's that's also a tall order to, you know, collect and analyze all that data as well. And so I commend you all for taking that on and we will be interested to see what once you all have some more of that data, opportunities for us to have you all back so we can discuss what are some of the results that you saw after a year or two of doing this program with your partner hospitals. It will be exciting to see what some of the things you find and learn, as well as what some of the data shows after that time frame. Yes, definitely. We are very hopeful and we are just very excited to take the successful program that's in Crawfordsville and bring it to other areas where it can help even more moms in Indiana. Nicole, I just want to thank you just for joining us today on a virtual view and just taking the time just to tell us a little bit about yourself as well as the community paramedicine program. And so we look forward to seeing what some of the results look like after a couple years. And hopefully we can just have you back again just to talk about everything. I want to thank you for listening to a virtual view. I've been your host, Caroline Yoder. You can find more information about today's episode in the show notes below. If you would like to support our podcast, please rate and review us on your favorite podcast platform. 
Do you have any questions or topics you'd like us to discuss? If so, contact us at info at umtrc.org or through the form found in the show notes. Also, we'd like to give a special thanks to our editor, Tristan Yoder. Finally, a special thanks to the Health Resources and Service Administration, also known as HRSA. Our podcast series, A Virtual View, is sponsored in part by HRSA's Telehealth Resource Center program, which is under HRSA's Office of the Administrator and the Office for the Advancement of Telehealth. The content and conclusions of this podcast are those of Caroline Yoder and Cameron Hilt of the UMTRC and should not be construed as the official policy of or the position of, nor should any endorsements be inferred by HRSA, HHS, or the U.S. government. Thanks for listening and have a great day.